So this one is, um, Paul, is it Pauline Christianity? Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just Christianity of Paul, yeah. Okay, so uh, Pauline Christianity being the Christian theology of Paul, uh, as seen in his uh, seven authentic Pauline epistles, um, espouses a salvation by faith theology, uh, which was incredibly revolutionary and really uh, came out to play with the uh, pro Protestantian. How do you say that? Protestant. That that's not how you spell Protestant. I oh, spell you Protestant spell, oh, okay, yeah. oh, sorry. Uh, the, the Protestant Reformation and later evangelical movements. Um, however, I have heard that uh, Judaism preaches that you should be good for the sake of being good as opposed to salvation. So how exactly is one saved in Judaism and uh, what must one do to please God? So, um, you know, the, the short answer is, uh, you know, follow the teachings in the Torah, uh, follow the commandments. That's what God wants us to do. Uh, obviously, that needs a lot of unpacking in terms of what that means, what's most important. Uh, there are a number of interesting passages in Scripture that sort of seem to summarize what Scripture is all about and efforts by the rabbis to summarize it and what's most important. But I think, you know, I, I think you're right to say that for Jews, you know, we live our lives following the the teachings as we understand them and trust that that is doing what we need to do uh, to uh, receive whatever, you know, reward there will be at the end of this life. Uh, The traditional texts speak about uh, the world to come, although they don't uh, explicitly talk too much about, you know, what it will be like there. There are some references, but, uh, but most Jews don't focus much on that uh, and simply say, yeah, I'm going to you know, live my life the way I think I should. When I do something wrong, I'm going to you know, repent, ask forgiveness from the person I offended or ask God forgiveness, uh, you know, observe the traditions as I understand them, treat others the way that I'm expected to based on scripture. And uh, yeah, trust that uh, ultimately that uh, will be what uh, uh, allows um, uh, me to, again, get whatever reward there is at the end. I should also add that uh, in Jewish tradition that the rabbis developed, it's not just Jews who uh, merit the world to come or salvation. Uh, according to the probably most significant interpretation, uh, non-Jews who follow what are known as the, the seven Noahide laws, seven basic laws divide, uh, derived from the stories in early Genesis, including the story of Noah, um, you know, will merit whatever reward there is as well. So, uh, so Judaism is not exclusive in that particular way, as, for example, some uh, forms of Christianity are, which say that unless you, you know, uh, accept Jesus uh, uh, as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. So, uh, so Judaism does allow others who are not Jewish to be part of uh, the ultimate uh, redemption, so to speak. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, that like the um, oh man, yeah. Excuse me, like there's this uh, philosopher who created this thing called Neoplatonism. It's a philosophy that influenced, you know, Christianity, it influenced um, 
uh, Ismailism, uh, which is like a type of Islam that influenced them. Um, uh, uh, I guess the Druze religion as well, like Druze, D-R-U-Z-E. Um, but like but with his his kind of his issue with Christianity, and he was a, he was a super brilliant guy. He was like a, essentially a, a pagan guy, but he wanted to find a rational way of religion. It was he didn't like how faith was kind of placed at the center of things. Like he didn't get the reason behind that. Um, so that was like his argument, this guy, this philosopher, this second century uh, pagan philosopher Plotinus. But also another thing to touch on, I guess, would be like the Noahide laws, like the seven ones, because those kind of like laid out the foundation for what was universal values. So I didn't know that like that, because um, I heard that there was like maybe possibly debate as to whether you'd you know, have to be uh, Jewish for like heaven or the new world um, to come. But I didn't know that, 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 you know, Gentiles follow the seven Noahide laws and then Jews follow the uh, Torah laws. I thought that was a, that was a really cool and fascinating uh, point. And then, um, Balin, did you want to talk, did you want to ask question number 10? Yes. Um, I have it here right now. Um, what is Sheol? Sheol? Sorry. Sheol? Sheol, yes. I think is what you mean. Oh, yes. Sheol. Uh, Sheol, yes? Is that? Yeah. yeah. The house of dust. And is it no longer a part of theology, given that it is a pre-Babylonian exile concept? Or is it reintroduced as a fiery pit? Or is that a strictly Christian concept of heaven and hell as two extreme opposites? Yeah, so uh, Sha'ol is a biblical idea and term that basically means the netherworld. Uh, not necessarily associated with fire, but uh, um, you know, the idea was, well, that's where after uh, one dies, uh, that's where everybody goes. Because uh, in the early biblical tradition, there was no concept of an afterworld. That really developed later. Um, in Judaism, you find, you know, some references to it, but it uh, really um, diminishes, um, you know, basically what the rabbis focuses on is the idea of the world to come uh, and whether one merits it or not. And again, there are some uh, speculation about, well, what about those who do not merit the world to come? And you know, the suffering that they go through, but very little. Most of it is just, uh, you know, saying, you know, what uh, is expected to, uh, to merit that. So, um, yeah, and of course, Christianity developed uh, its ideas in its own way, some based on what you find in Hebrew scriptures and uh, issues that Jews were wrestling with in the uh, first, second centuries when Christianity was beginning to develop. Uh, and then, you know, some of what they ultimately uh, believed, you know, was based on various um, uh, Greek ideas that uh, had a, a meaningful influence on uh, their ideology. So it was really a, a mixture of that that uh, influenced Christianity in its own way. So again, we pretty much just speak of the world to come and whether, you know, people are uh, going to merit it or not. Uh, yeah, and then uh, my my next question, and I'll um, I'll just give it over to I guess Noah can ask uh, the twelfth question, and then um, 
uh, Balin Mask 13th one. So yeah, I saw like a really cool video. It was by, a, um, it was on this channel. I think it's called something like uh, My Jewish Learning Institute something. It was a, it was a channel I used to watch because um, I thought that was, it was cool to learn about that. Um, and there's this um, rabbi, his name was Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, I believe. Um, and he talked about like his argument for why God exists. And he used the teleological argument and he used the argument that I thought was the most interesting, which was he said, Hey, the words of Abraham influence like 2 billion people today. So I was wondering like what your four point argument for the existence of a being would be. So, um, you know, I think that uh, for me, why I uh, am reassured that there is uh, a God is, you know, sort of looking at the, the broader world with all its warts and challenges and awful things that happen and seeing the beauty, the intricacy, uh, the resilience of human beings when they suffer, uh, the um, willingness of so many human beings to do things to help others. You know, a great example is the effort to develop the vaccine to deal with COVID-19 and the dedication of so many scientists uh, to do that and to develop a number of different vaccines, you know, and, you know, spend hours and hours, plus not to mention all of the people on the front line treating people uh, uh, and risking their own lives uh, is so inspiring to me. So, um, you know, so when sometimes I get a little bit upset or depressed and have to deal with some of the awful realities of life, you know, that is what encourages me to say, yes, there are these people who find an inspiration from somewhere to do this. For some, it may be a religious inspiration. For some, it more be maybe more secular inspiration. But still, they are doing something for the good of human beings uh, in the world, which is incredibly admirable. And again, for all the awful things uh, that have happened and continue to happen, uh, that is, for me, the most inspiring and important in terms of affirming uh, God. Awesome. Yeah, that was a that was a that was a great uh, that was a great argument. Um, and Noah or Balin, would you like to ask um, question number twelve? Uh, sure. All right. So uh, this one is um, a common. Uh, a common objection to the existence of God is that God seems to uh, seems to some people as angry, uh, malevolent, and human-like in the Old Testament. What would be an objection to that literalist interpretation? Yeah, well, I mean, some would say that in the depiction of God you find uh, in Hebrew scriptures, human beings created God in their own image uh, with all of the different qualities. Um, and I mean, there's no doubt that God is sometimes angry uh, and uh, destructive, uh, but God is also often compassionate and uh, caring. Uh, so, um, you know, I think it's a, in many ways, realistic uh, understanding of all of the different uh, emotions that a supreme being might have uh, and the fact that 
God cares about human beings. That, for some, is the most amazing thing at all, that, that God cares enough to, uh, you know, when we do something wrong, to call us to account for that, whether it is, you know, some of the direct punishments that occur in Scripture or uh, when it seems over time God withdraws from that form of interaction, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, our own coming, calling ourselves to account uh, for when we do not live up to what God expects of us. So I do think, you know, I think it's, you know, very realistic. And again, most importantly, it reflects God's love and caring, you know, for people, particularly, you know, the Israelites who become the Jews, because they are what uh, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner calls uh, in one of his explanations of the idea of the chosen people, God's pilot project, God's example to the world, uh, you know, and uh, that's what hopefully we are supposed to be, you know, by living our lives in such a way that people will say, wow, uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, maybe I should get to know that God, whether it's through Judaism or Christianity or Islam, you know, it, you know, all of those, I think, have legitimate paths to the same God. I was going to say something. Dang, I forgot. What was I going to say? Uh, um, oh, yes. I was going to say, like, it, it's your, your, um, your view that, like, it's incredible that um, God interacts with us is absolutely fascinating. Because if you look at, you know, the vastness of the universe and then you look at a tiny speck within a speck within the grain of sand, really, it's like, that's, that's cool that the creator of all of this chooses to interact with such a small piece of it like humans. So yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was, a, I thought that was a really cool point. I've never heard that before, but I, I think that like, that would be a, that's a, definitely a strong argument or a interpretation or whatever you'd want to call it. Yeah. And then, um, Balin, would you like to, uh, would you like to ask a uh, question? Um, 13. Well, I, I, uh, yes. There was a very, thought-provoking Jewish apologetics video in which the rabbi claimed that Judaism is the only religion that espouses mass revelation, being from Mount Sinai, whereas all other religions begin with one or two people having a transcendental experience. That being said, what are some pieces of historical evidence for Exodus? Or if there aren't historical evidence, uh, like for like, what would be the interpretation of it? Because I guess it could go either way. Either it's a historical event, or it's a, or it's a very cool like um, allegory with um, an underlying divinely inspired message. Yeah. So um, there's not a lot of archaeological evidence to corroborate uh, either the slavery in Egypt or the Exodus in the wilderness. That being said, is you know some have written. You know, it's not the type of thing you would just make up about yourselves and your suffering and things like that. So, you know, so I um, accept that there is, a, you know, sort of a kernel of truth to it, that there were uh, Israelites who lived in Egypt at some point who suffered there, who left there, who uh, wandered through the Sinai to the land of Israel, who had this encounter with God there 
and uh, you know became the kernel of what we know as the Torah. Um, but I think you know the two events, uh, the slavery and uh, release from slavery in Egypt, and the revelation at Sinai are really the two core historical events in Judaism, uh, and they are still you know, to this day, you know, the two core events, you know, whether they happened or happened the way that scripture says it is not as important to me as the message we take from them. So the message that we take from being slaves in Egypt is that, uh, you know, is repeated many times in scripture, you know, love the stranger because you know this heart of the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Um, Furthermore, uh, it affirms God's saving power. Uh, and I know that is a message that not only has resonated with Jews at times, but with, for example, African-Americans. It's an important part of liberation theology, uh, that story and that tradition. So it's a powerful message. The uh, experience at Sinai, uh, you know, sort of the, the mass revelation, um, again, even if it's just a myth, a story that we tell, you know, reflects a, an important truth that, I mean, what we say is we were all at Mount Sinai, all Jews for all time, period. You know, from, you know, someone who, you know, becomes Jewish today, they can say that, that they were at Mount Sinai. I can say that. Now, again, we don't mean that literally, but we mean that that experience speaks to me and I accept the fact that it is important to embrace the idea that God has communicated teachings to us that we are supposed to follow. And we don't just live our lives, you know, any old way. We, um, you know, wrestle with the teachings, try to understand them and apply them to our lives today. Yeah, I really like I really like a like a figurative interpretation of, of religion myself because it's like if, if we look at it literally, that, that that's awesome. If we look at it figuratively, it's like wow, this adds a completely new dimension to it. You know, um, that 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 is that that that's like a, I guess that's the way that um, like because you can view it almost like a as a philosophy, but you can also keep like the the religious aspect to it if you view it figuratively. So right. that was just my take on it. Yeah, and then um. So like um yeah I just I just um let's see I'm gonna ask uh, let's see I'm actually gonna, actually Noah do you want to go ahead and um ask question number sixteen uh sure sixteen yep all right so this question is uh, how does Judaism differ from Christianity on original sin so yeah the idea of original sin does not really appear or apply in Judaism uh, that being said uh, you know Judaism you know obviously reads the same stories uh, from Genesis that is uh, um, sorry just got uh, had to refuse a uh, phone message I may get something on my phone here too I'm uh, on campus and they're letting us know because there's a power outage in the other part of campus whether we're going to have classes there anyway um, so um, you know Judaism understands that uh, you know at some point in time and the Genesis uh, story of Adam and Eve you know tries to sort of uh, mytholo mythologically explain it 
you know, human beings were aware of right and wrong and the ability to act freely and disobey and, you know, reward and punishment and all of those things connected with that. Um, the way we view human nature, I mean, Christianity says everyone's born with original sin. What we say is that everyone uh, is born with what we call a yetzer hara, an evil inclination. Now, even though it's called evil, it's actually um, uh, a part of our sort of our human nature. Uh, the yetzer hara uh, is our instincts toward. Uh, um, you know, sexual activity toward uh, defending ourselves uh, if we are attacked, uh, those things that are part of our nature and are inborn in us. Um, at the same time, Judaism says that it is our responsibility as parents, teachers, to help uh, people develop uh, what's called a yetzer hatov, a good inclination, which is fairly similar to what we mean in English by a conscience. And Judaism believes that by the time a young person turns 13, uh, they should be uh, mature enough uh, so that their Yetzirahara uh, is able to, for the most part, the best we can control the, uh, excuse me, the Yetzirahara, the good inclination, control the bad inclination. So that what that means is at that point, they're responsible for their own transgressions rather than up to that point, parents being. So I, you know, I think that's a, a really helpful way to understand human nature and how we should deal with it. That there are certain things that are naturally a part of us uh, that we need to learn how to control them. Most of us do pretty well most of the time, but all of us from time to time don't. Uh, and that's why we do things that we shouldn't. Uh, and again, we always have to continue to uh, work on making sure that uh, we are controlling our uh, basis instincts, which I, again, I think is what uh, Yetzer Hara means. Well, that was a, that was a great, ex that was a great explanation. I personally think that, you know, like um, that personally to me makes a lot more sense than the concept of, ri of original sin. Like there's, we're, we're built with inclinations, but then we have to, it's the responsibility of, of, of teachers and ourselves and parents to, build up, like what you said, a conscience to uh, combat that. So um, Noah, would you like to uh, ask the rest of the uh, questions um, through uh, question 22 and then Balin can jump in afterwards? Yep. All right. Um, so the next one is uh, with the influence of Neoplatonism on uh, Christianity, uh, God becomes more ab abstract and less gendered, um, at least in some denominations. Um, however, if you go back to the scriptures, both ideologies refer to God in male terms. So is the Jewish view that God is essentially an invisible man in the sky, or is he more abstract? Um, yeah, so, um, so Judaism has tried to emphasize, and I think Maimonides did it best, that uh, God is not a physical being and should not be represented by any physical being um, and therefore God is beyond what we think of as gender and the fact that scripture you know refers to God as in a gendered way most of the time excuse me there are a couple of places where you can argue there are um, 
you know, female references talking about suckling and things like that. But most of the time, you know, male just reflects the, uh, uh, the society in which the scriptures developed and things. And certainly in the modern times, most Jews uh, try to, you know, you not use male pronouns when referring to God because that, you know, leads to people thinking that God is male when Judaism does not believe that God is male. Uh, so uh, the, for example, prayer books we use today, you know, do not use he, him for God. They might use nouns like God uh, and, and the like uh, rather than uh, those words. Uh, and certainly, you know, when I've uh, spoken, try to avoid them uh, as well. Um, it's easier actually in English to deal with the gendered nature of the liturgy than it is in Hebrew, because in Hebrew, everything is gendered. Uh, you know, almost all verbs except for first person verbs, uh, adjectives have to agree with the nouns. Uh, you know, and most nouns that refer to God are considered masculine singular. The one term that developed uh, uh, to refer to God historically that's a female gendered term um, is um, Shekhinah, often translated as the divine presence, uh, not that much different than what Christians think of as the Holy Spirit, uh, but uh, uh, that is, you know, reflects, you know, a, you know, a female aspect, although I wouldn't push it too far, uh, because again, you know, the core teaching in Judaism is that God's beyond gender. So, but at least there is one term that, you know, is used sometimes uh, to refer to God that has this, you know, female uh, uh, aspect to it. And, you know, what I try to teach is that, uh, you know, since all terms we use for to uh, describe God are really metaphors in a sense, we should broaden our use. So whereas sometimes we refer to God as father, we should refer to God as mother as well. It's not that we should eliminate all of these, but that, you know, try to increase ones that reflect a certain aspect of God's being. No term can... Uh, begin to capture a significant part of God's being, but there are terms that can capture a, uh, a, a tiny aspect, terms that we understand. The reason we use this is we sort of understand what they mean and can think of, oh, you know, I know what it means to be a father as me. Uh, I've seen, you know, what it means for someone to be a mother. I know the qualities that that means, so I can understand what that means when we apply them to God. That was a that was a great answer. Thanks. Um, yeah, that was awesome. Um, that that was like Maimonides. He was a he was a super influential uh, figure. Obviously, I, I believe he wrote like the thirteen articles. Is that is that what it is to be? Uh, to be thirteen Jewish? articles yeah. of faith. Right, it was one of his uh, uh, documents that was included in a larger work. Uh, Noah, would you like to ask ask the rest of the questions through twenty two? Um. <clears throat> so the next question is, uh, I know that Talmud is a massive multi-volume uh, commentary on Judaism. Uh, so it would be probably, it, so it would probably be very difficult to sum it up in a few sentences, but nonetheless, uh, what, uh, what would you, uh, what would be a good summary of the Talmud? So um, the Talmud, uh, first of all, 
uh, the origins of it go back really till the earliest uh, centuries of the common era. Uh, in the year 200, Rabbi Judah, uh, who is head of one of the academies in the land of Israel, compiled teachings into a work that became known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah then was studied at academies both in the land of Israel and Babylonia, and each community independently developed its own Talmud. So there are actually two Talmuds, one in uh, the land of Israel, or the Jerusalem Talmud, and the Babylonian Talmud. Usually when people speak of the Talmud, they're talking about the Babylonian Talmud, because that is the larger one, the one that really says more about what it's like to live outside the land of Israel. So it is a compilation of teachings. It has uh, uh, discussions of laws. It has stories. Uh, it really is uh, an incredibly broad work that reflects the earliest, uh, uh, from that period of time, uh, struggles of Judaism to try to reimagine Judaism after the destruction of the temple. Uh, because really the core amount of work done and the teachings done uh, were done after the destruction mm -hmm. of the temple. Uh, and so it continues to be studied today uh, to really uh, come to terms and understand a lot of things, uh, to see how uh, the various rabbis and others uh, dealt with the uh, uh, teachings that they inherited in uh, the scripture. Uh, Noah, would you like to ask the next question? Yeah. Um, all right. What are the seven heavens of Judaism? Uh, what does each layer of heaven look like? Um, wh which divine beings inhabit these layers? Uh, who goes there? And what do people do in those heavens? So that idea sort of comes from, uh, you know, sort of an imaginary, imaginative envisioning of, uh, what was believed to be uh, uh, what uh, the world was like, uh, and, you know, above the world. Um, I have not studied that idea, so I can't really share much in the way of details in terms of that. You know, there are certain aspects of Judaism that focus on that, try to explain that, but it's not something that's been an important part of my world, so can't really answer that question. I know, like, um, like a figurative interpretation of heaven is always like a is always like a good uh, thing to go to. But another point on the seven heavens idea, I know that that was it, that was popular in the Mesopotamian region of the world, um, especially during early Judaism. So, um, and also uh, this idea was essentially revived um, by Islam. There are seven heavens of Islam, and also in the one of the Pauline epistles, the authentic ones, um, Paul mentions the third layer of heaven, which my understanding of that is it is supposed to be the Garden of Eden, except um, the heavenly version. And then there's one version, of, there's one layer of heaven that's supposed to be the um, the perfect, ver there's all the objects of this world, except they're in their perfect form. Okay, interesting. Thanks. And then um, did you want to ask um, question uh, 20, Noah? Yeah. Um, there have been many, uh, Messiah claimants throughout history, Judas, the Galilean, Jesus, uh, the Sabbatai, uh, Zevi as a few examples. Um, what is, uh, what is like a, a five point criteria for the Messiah? So in the modern, modern Judaism, there are two, you know, views of, uh, what the Messiah might be about. 
Uh, one view is that uh, just as scripture really describes it, uh, there will be an individual a human being, fully human, chosen by God, who uh, is identified as the Messiah and brings the world to uh, ultimate redemption and perfection. Um, so, uh, you know, what criteria that person has to have, I think, is a pretty uh, amazing uh, understanding of the world, the challenges, uh, and so forth. Uh, the other view that myself uh, and many others ascribe to is that there will not be a personal or individual Messiah, but all of us have a responsibility to help try and bring about the messianic age. Uh, the type of world uh, described by the prophets of peace and justice. Uh, and that, uh, you know, we can work toward that goal, probably unattainable in most of our lifetimes, but that's what we're supposed to do uh, in order to uh, uh, do that. So those are the two major views today. Well, I really, I really like the, the, the second interpretation because I've heard of the first one before. Um, but the, the second one uh, is, is is super is like um, that that that's a great figurative interpretation, yeah. In my opinion, um, Noah, did you want to ask um, question twenty two? Because I think we've already talked about twenty one about the Garden of Eden, yeah. Right. Um, Judaism and Islam uh, both have a ban on pig meat. So, what is the Jewish or kosher diet, um, and why does uh, uh, why does that? Uh, why are those particular food products uh, th like? What are the particular food products that Jews can't eat? It's so, um, so the dietary laws really begin in Scripture and then continue as the rabbis interpret it. So Scripture says that we can only eat animals that chew their cud and have cloven hooves, which means that uh, you know beef from cows, lamb, etc., is okay but pork is not. And of course there are other things as well, but that's uh, one of the ones. Uh, scripture also says that those things that are in the ocean uh, can only be eaten if they have fins and scales. So that means that things like salmon and tuna and trout are fine, but shellfish uh, uh, is not. And then with regard to things that fly in the sky, it basically doesn't give categories, but it lists, um, uh, birds of prey and say we cannot have them. So the implication is things that are domesticated, chicken, turkey, duck, etc., can be eaten. Scripture doesn't go into much detail saying why that is in those cases, other than saying it's to make you a holy people, which probably means to be set apart from others. So there's been a lot of speculation about the whys and wherefores. Um, and uh, so, so people who, not all Jews observe them, but those who do understand them as, you know, ways to have a distinctive uh, home, to think about what we do when we eat, what we uh, uh, eat and don't eat. Uh, in addition, um, the rabbis interpreted a biblical passage that says you shall uh, 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 do not boil a kid in its mother's milk to mean that we should not have milk and meat together at the same meal. So if we're going to have beef, and for this purposes, the rabbi said chicken was meat, uh, we're not gonna have anything with milk or milk product and vice versa. If we're gonna have milk or cheese, we're not gonna have meat or chicken. So that's a further development in terms of the dietary laws. And again, it's not clear why that is, what was the benefit of that, but 
uh, it is what Jews who observe those laws uh, do today as far as that goes. So, um, so yeah, those are the, the primary uh, dietary laws. As I said, some Jews follow all of them, some Jews follow some of them, some Jews follow none of them. Uh, and I think they uh, do so for different reasons. Uh, traditional Jews, those who are Orthodox, do so because they believe they're a commandment from God. You know, I do so in the way I do because I believe it enhances my life and that it uh, uh, causes me to think about what I eat and uh, the uh, how I go about living my life. Um, don't uh, pretend to understand the exact whys or wherefores, but uh, you know, still follow the traditions in the, that way. I think like the meeting will like end soon, but I guess we can like jump back on there. Um... And then um, Noah, would you like, um, I mean, sorry, Balin, would you like to ask uh, 23? Forgot I was muted. <laughs> All right. Um, so as someone who myself uh, is interested in the history of uh, magic, uh, mystical uh, ideologies, that sort of thing, and has studied uh, the use of magic by ancient and medieval medieval peoples. I was wondering uh, what your view on the Kabbalah and um, how it reintroduces Jewish mysticism into the medieval period. So I think the Kabbalah represents a, a fascinating attempt to sort of reimagine scripture and reimagine how we understand the world. Um, you know, there are aspects of it that I understand and embrace, and most of it, since I haven't spent a lot of time studying it, you know, I don't understand it and don't necessarily embrace it. Uh, it encompasses a lot, including things that we would consider magic uh, that you also find in the Talmud, for example. Um, and so uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it needs to be approached cautiously and thoughtfully. Uh, not everyone is willing to, to do that. Traditionally, you weren't supposed to study Kabbalah until you were 40 years old because rabbis felt you needed to be well grounded in tr the other traditional Jewish sources uh, and perhaps for other reasons. Okay, so for another question um, about um, magic, uh, the concept of the golem has captivated the minds of many theologians, mystics, and storytellers alike. So what is a golem in Judaism, and how does it relate to Jewish mysticism? Yeah, so the idea of the golem seems to have developed uh, uh, in the later Middle Ages. Rabbi Judah Prague is connected with it. Um, it's sort of like the Pro and Jewish version, and maybe even the model for Frankenstein a uh, being, you know, sort of created, you know, from uh, uh, someone's efforts that can have supernatural powers and things. Uh, so there are a variety of stories about it. It probably, you know, it plays a minor role, I think, within mysticism. People enjoy the stories. I don't know that people, you know, take it seriously to, uh, you know, as sort of a, a literal account, but, uh, you know, it is a, a fascinating um you know, concept, particularly since, uh, you know, it does have uh, other 
references reference uh, in the, the more modern world where it seems to have connections to that idea. Awesome. And then, um, Balin, did you want to ask um, question 26? Yes. Uh, why are there two different accounts of creation in Genesis? So I think it's because of the fact that there were uh, different traditions that were handed on. Uh, one, uh, you know, uh, by a group that sometimes is called J or the Yahwehists. Uh, uh, that would be actually the second one. And then the first Genesis story is uh, attributed to the priestly tradition. And I think that the genius of those responsible for bringing together these traditions is they didn't, you know, just uh, throw one out and keep the one they thought that was best, but they wove them together uh, in a way that, uh, I wouldn't say seamless, but that they flow one to the other. Uh, and that's true in other places in scripture as well, where it's clear that certain stories are woven together from different accounts. For example, in the Noah and the flood story, uh, everyone you know, knows that Noah took uh, two of each animal onto the ark, but there is a passage that talks about taking seven clean animals, uh, uh, seven of each clean animal and two of each unclean animal rep, uh, representing the uh, later understanding of, of animals that can and cannot be eaten or used for sacrifices. Uh, and that, you know, they just weave that right in and, and, and the like. So somehow you have to make sense of that. So I think it's great that they leave these different things there, even when they seem to uh, contradict each other. A parallel in uh, Christianity, and I just kind of keep, like, I don't know, Christianity is like, for some reason, for me, it's like my personal reference point for religion. I don't know why, but um, I guess it's just because I've, I've studied, um, like, uh, like the New Testament a little bit. But um, in the gospel, that kind of reminds me of how in the gospel of John, Jesus kind of, like, stories will start halfway. He'll be in one place, and then suddenly he'll be in another place. And then how there's also, like, two different uh, resurrection accounts alone in the gospel of John as an example. Um so it's kind of like um, instead of prioritizing one over the other, let's just try to accept the truths in both of them would be, I guess, the interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. No. And another example is you get, you know, you know, the first account of the Israelites entry into the land of Israel after wandering the wilderness in the book of Joshua, which is pretty systematic. And, uh, you know, each of these places are conquered. You get a very different account in the next book, the book of Judges. Uh, and so somehow you have to reconcile that uh, uh, in terms of saying, yeah, um, you know, it may not be clear what the actual, you know, historical events were, but there's different ways of looking at it uh, in, in retrospect. Uh, Bill, and maybe you could ask um, question um, 27, and then you could ask, uh, that work for you? Awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is a brief summary of Jewish angelology? So, um, you know, angels are mentioned a number of times in uh, scripture and Genesis and other books of scripture. Um, 
at times these angels appear fully human uh, and sometimes they're uh, it's as if they are human at one point and angels at another. Um, so um, what angels seem to be are beings, according to tradition, created by God, have sometimes different missions and focuses in what they do. Uh, so, for example, the three first human beings that appear to Abraham uh, later clearly become angels, are there to, you know, basically let him and Sarah know that they will become parents of a, uh, a child, even though they are old and well past childbearing age. Um, so, uh, and then later in Genesis, you have a being that uh, Jacob wrestles with. And again, it, um, sometimes it seems like just a physical person and other times it's clearly a divine being. Uh, so, um, you know, so that's what you have. Um, uh, Satan in Judaism uh, is considered an angel uh, and Satan's responsibility is to both challenge human beings and God, uh, ultimately under God's control according to tradition, but certainly given a lot of leeway, as for example, we see in the book of Job, uh, the like. So um, in later Judaism, there are different you know, views and interpretation of uh, uh, you know, what angels are and their meaning. I think that today, you know, people don't spend a lot of time thinking about them. It's, most people don't necessarily deny the reality that they can uh, you know, exist, but, uh, uh, you know, don't see them really as part of uh, our world in a meaningful way. Uh, very fascinating. Um, and then, um, uh, Balin, did you want to ask uh, question number, I think we already talked about, we already kind of talked about prophethood for uh, 28, but do you want to talk about uh, 29? All right. I know that Yom Kippur, was a relatively recent Jewish holiday. So what are other Jewish holidays and what do they commemorate? So this fall, we first um, observed Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which is both uh, considered to be the anniversary of creation, but also the beginning of 10 days of repentance leading up to Yom Kippur where we focus on the past year, think about the wrongs we've done, apologize to people we may have offended, and prepare ourselves for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where we ask God for forgiveness for things we have done wrong. Yom Kippur is also a day of fasting, uh, so we focus on our spiritual aspect, not our physical aspect. We are currently uh, observing the holiday of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, uh, a week-long uh, festival that commemorates the uh, time the Israelites wandered in the wilderness of Sinai and lived in temporary shelters, uh, but also commemorating the fall harvest. Uh, in the spring, we celebrate Passover also for a week uh, where we commemorate the exodus from Egypt. And then uh, 50 days later, it's sort of like the Jewish Pentecost. We celebrate Shavuot uh, where we uh, which commemorates the uh, giving and the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So those are the, the major holidays. We have a number of minor holidays, probably the best well-known is Hanukkah, 
uh, in uh, either beginning in late November or December. Uh, and that commemorates the historical event uh, accounted in the Book of Maccabees, uh, where uh, the uh, Syrian Greeks wanted to outlaw the Jewish religion and a group of uh, Jewish leaders led by Mattathias and his sons uh, fought back and ultimately recaptured and rededicated the temple. Uh, and then in the early spring, we have another holiday forum, which is based on the biblical book of Esther and celebrates uh, being saved from a uh, person, uh, Haman, who uh, uh, wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Uh, so those are the primary uh, holidays and observances. Well, uh, yeah, I know, I know, like uh, Yom Kippur was like was like really recent, and that was that was like why like you weren't able to do the interview on was like was it last Thursday right. or two Thursdays ago? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Balin, do you want to ask a question uh, number thirty? All right. Why do Jews not go out pro proselytizing and spreading their religion by missionary work? So I think there's two answers to that. One is sort of historical and the other is probably more theological. The historical answer is that Judaism does seem to have been a proselytizing religion before Christianity came along. There's pretty good examples in the stories that are in the Talmud about that. But that once Christianity, especially once it became, you know, uh, connected with the political powers, it often was illegal uh, for uh, Jews or others to proselytize. And so Judaism built in saying that, you know, we don't aggressively go out. Uh, but Jews have always welcomed those who are interested in Judaism. The theological reason goes back to what we're talking about with the Noahide laws, and that is that if one can uh, merit the world to come with only uh, observing those seven laws, why should we insist that they enjoy, uh, observe the, you know, the Torah, the greater teachings as we understand them. So, um, you know, so that doesn't make sense. So um, in today's world, I think uh, Judaism does welcome those who uh, are interested in becoming Jewish. Uh, we require serious study and beginning to practice the religion. Uh, over my uh, 39 years as an active rabbi, I worked with many people who embraced Judaism. You know, some had been raised in Christianity or another religious tradition, usually had left it behind and were searching for something meaningful. Uh, some had not had any religious tradition, but felt something was missing from their lives. Uh, so, um, so yeah, people continue to explore. And, uh, you know, today, if you go to most synagogues, you know, be welcome to, uh, you know, begin learning about Judaism and decide if it's the tradition for you. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. I didn't know that like in the Talmud, there was uh, there was proselytizing. This, it, what, what it, this reminds me of in Zoroastrianism is, is like definitely uh, more of an extreme example because in, in some uh, versions of Zoroastrianism, like they don't accept uh, uh, converts at all, but um, in some versions, they do actually uh, want people to go out and, and uh, proselytize. But it, it's fascinating how like, um, you know, you see like Islam, it's, it's pretty active. There's a lot of Muslim channels on YouTube about like spreading that and then uh christianity it's there's a lot of like there's like you know, tell tell evangelists people like that but for judaism i think it seems to me like uh the form of proselytizing here is leading by example so right 
Yeah, and I think we've like near the end of our questions. So I'm, I, I can uh, go ask um, a question uh, 31. So uh, for you, what does it mean uh, to be a rabbi? So the reason I decided as a young man to become a rabbi is that I felt that, uh, you know, I wanted to do the things the rabbi does, which is to teach primarily, teaching children and adults, to um, uh, offer uh, liturgy messages to my community, uh, make life cycle events meaningful for people, uh, pastoral care and counseling, you know, something that I took pretty seriously, uh, and to wrestle with, uh, you know, the important questions in, in life. Uh, and, you know, certainly found that per personally meaningful throughout that time and continue to, to do so in my uh, retirement, still doing uh, a lot of teaching, some life cycle ceremonies and, and the like. So, um, so yeah, that's what uh, being a rabbi has meant to me, and as well as to, I think, uh, uh, represent Judaism to the greater community, really, as we're doing here. Uh, in both of my major uh, long-term uh, pulpits in Salinas, California and Tacoma, Washington, I've you know, really been uh, the primary Jewish voice to the community uh, and have uh, uh, really appreciated the opportunity to uh, educate, to share, to answer questions about Judaism. And then um, at the end of like each, uh, at the end of each um, like interview, we've actually only done, um, we've, we've done two uh, so far and it was with uh, like Rylan, he, he left, but like one of his friends and then someone at our school and um, a, a Buddhist um, reverend. So we'd ask them, what does it mean to be a member of the certain of their religion? So I wanted to ask you, uh, what does it mean for you to be a Jew? So for me, it means to uh, practice the traditions of Judaism uh, to be engaged with uh, reading and studying Torah, scripture, uh, to um, uh, reach out to others, uh, serve human beings in a variety of ways, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, helping on projects uh, to deal with uh, a hunger and homelessness or I'm involved with the city of Tacoma's Heal the Heart of Tacoma anti-racism effort at this point. Uh, so to find opportunities to uh, both uh, enhance the life of uh, uh, Jews in the Jewish community and also to enhance uh, and help uh, deal with issues in our greater community. Well, that was an awesome answer. Uh, something that I, you know, really appreciate about uh, Judaism is like the call to service, the call to works. And it seems like uh, you've uh, obviously really embodied that. So uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been great. Like, thank you so much for, uh, for being on this podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Sure. I'm glad it worked out. Take care. You too. See you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.